And it came to pass that as they went on the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes of holes and, the, and birds of the air of nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man having put his hand to the plough, and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Amen. We know that God will bless the reading of his word to our hearts. Let's seek the Lord for prayer. Lord, we come to you in the name of our Savior. We thank you for your goodness and your grace and your love. Thank you for your word and for the authority of your word. And as we examine your word tonight, we pray for your help and we pray for spiritual enlightenment. And therefore, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart, will be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. Tonight we're going to think about these three people who interacted with the Lord Jesus Christ from verses 57 to 62. And this interaction concluded with a tremendous challenge that the Lord set forth, a challenge that should come to every heart with power tonight. No man, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Tonight we're going to think about discipleship, and we're going to consider the very important link that there is between discipleship and Christianity. Some people are very content to take the label Christian, even to take the place of being saved. And sometimes we, we hear that phrase. It's a very curious phrase that I hear from time to time to describe someone, oh, so-and-so takes the place of being saved. And some are happy to take that place but yet they're not happy to be known as a disciple. And that really is a contradiction in terms, because someone that is a Christian and someone that is saved is also a disciple. The two terms are in reality synonymous, and someone who claims that they're part of the church or part of the family of God and take all the privileges that goes with that then doesn't want to be wholly committed to Jesus. There's something radically wrong with that individual's profession of Christianity. You see, whenever the Lord was laboring, whenever He ministered, He was the greatest of all preachers, the greatest of all teachers. His words were remarkable, the tone with which He delivered, the look of His eye, everything about Him, was filled with such power and authority and compassion. But not everyone came. Not everyone accepted the message. In fact, 
at the very end of his ministry, his earthly ministry, as he came to the cross, there were very few. And you wonder, looking back at that, where were the blind people who now could see? Where were the deaf people who now could hear? Where were lives that had been radically transformed? Where were all the common people that heard him gladly? And he came to the cross, and they all forsook him. Even his disciples, they forsook him. There were so very few. The foot of the cross, expressing their love and support for Jesus. And from that perspective, in the eyes of men, judging the ministry of our Lord by earthly standards, standards in terms of popularity, people would say it was a failure. Of course, it wasn't a failure. But it highlights the fact that not everyone came, and many refused him. And yet he never turned anyone away. There was nobody that came to him that he said, I'm not having you. In fact, he said, him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. He had arms of love for everyone. And then there were those who came who had to be discouraged because they didn't come properly. They didn't come with the right motives. Sometimes in life we get excited whenever people seem to show spontaneous enthusiasm for spiritual things. But then we don't see the heart. And some people are like the Dr. Paisley talked about the fizzy bottle Christian. You shake them and the fizz is there and then they go flat all of a sudden and there's nothing there. And sometimes that happens. And certainly in terms of these three people, the Lord could read the heart, he could read the soul, he could read the spirit. And there was something not quite genuine about these three people. They wanted in our terms to be Christians, but they didn't want to be disciples. There was something that these three men had in common. They did not shed a tear over their sin. They did not experience pangs of conviction. They never experienced the joy of forgiveness because they never once admitted that they needed to be forgiven. They were men who wanted to make decisions, but they didn't want to become disciples. We could say here were three wannabe followers, three would-be followers of Jesus Christ, but they weren't true followers of Jesus Christ. You see, this is a study into the subject of discipleship, but it's also a study into the subject of false conversion, spurious conversion. Someone who has a profession without true possession of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, what these three men had in common was this. They did not want to pay the price of being a disciple. They didn't want to take the cost. And there is a cost to being a true follower of Jesus Christ. And those that are true followers will be willing to pay that price. And so often it is that price that separates the wheat from the chaff. 
the tares from the corn. And so let us think about this tonight, the cost of discipleship. Let's think about these three men whom the Lord interacted with here in Luke chapter 9. And I just want to say this. They were walking with him. Verse 57, And it came to pass that as they went in the way, they were walking with Jesus. What a privilege. But they were walking in a physical way, but they weren't walking spiritually. All was not what it appeared to be. And that's how it can be with men and women to the very present. And that's a challenging, challenging thing. So let's think about the impossible disciple, first of all. This is the first disciple. We're told in verse 57, he was simply a certain man. And he said unto the Lord, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. It all sounds so lovely, doesn't it? So wonderful. I'm going to follow you wherever you go, Lord. Wherever you go, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to walk with you all the way. Never going to leave your side. I'm going to be wholly devoted to you. It was a great statement. He called them Lord. All seems to be going well. I suppose if you or I had heard that man speaking, we would have said, oh, there's a convert. The Lord's really been working in that man's life. There's a man that's broken. There's a man that has great zeal and great sincerity. But it wasn't the case. You see, there was something about this man. He was never called of God to begin with. He never experienced God working in his life. You will see in verse 59, the second man heard the words, follow me. But the first man, and indeed the third man, did not hear the words, follow me. This man said he would follow the Lord, but he never had the call to begin with. The Lord hadn't truly spoken to him. So therefore, what he was saying and, and what he was determining to do and, and what he was intending to do was all about himself. It was all about his ideas, his mind, his will, his ability. It was all about him. It was all about self. It wasn't about God working in his heart and in his life. It was about what he could give. It was about what he could do. But it was never about the Savior. That was the problem with this first man. He was filled with self, filled with a sense of pride. He wanted others to hear him. He wanted others to hear him saying, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. He wanted others to say, isn't that a very fine individual? He wanted others to say, oh, he's a better man than, than Peter or Philip or even the very disciples themselves. He's going to follow the Lord wherever he would go. But it was all about his own proud, arrogant spirit. It never was about the Savior. You see, if you are to follow the Lord, you must have the call of God in your heart. The Bible says, Christ said, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. Unless there is that prompting of the Spirit in your heart, you cannot be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's something that 
we pray for in regard to the unconverted. Lord, speak to that man, speak to that woman, speak to that young person. Work in their life. Draw them to yourself because it is only God's grace that can save. It's not a decision that saves. It's not even a prayer that saves. It's the Spirit of God working in the heart that converts and everything else, whether it is the faith or the prayer, that is a product of God working in the life. But where God is speaking and where God is giving you a burden of sin and where God is showing that you need to be saved and where God is working in your life, there must be a response. There must be a response. And woe to the man or to the woman that does not respond to the voice of the Spirit. Because I can tell you something. My Spirit, the Bible says, will not always strive with man. So it is a privilege to hear the voice, follow me. This man tried to come his own way, tried to do things his own way, tried to bypass the call of the Lord, and he tried to say, Lord, I will. Do you see that? I will. It's all about me. I will follow you whithersoever you go. What did the Lord say to him? The Lord's response is very insightful. Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Okay, you want to follow me? Come. Life will not be comfortable. It will not be easy. I have nowhere to lay my head. I have no home. I'm penniless. Don't have anything of this world. I have nowhere to lay my head. Are you going to come? Are you going to pray with me through those long nights? Are you going to be despised and rejected by others? Are you going to follow me all the way? And what the Lord was doing there, he was putting his finger upon this man's ambition. This man was saying to the Lord, I will follow you whithersoever you go, because he was consumed with earthly ambition. He wanted an easy life. That's why he wanted to follow the Lord. You're a king. You say you're a king. You're the Messiah. You're going to drive the Romans out. You're going to establish a kingdom. That was a misconception that many of the Lord's followers had. Indeed, it was a misconception the disciples themselves were guilty of at some stages, and we can see that through the Gospels. The Lord would drive the Romans out, that he would establish a, a kingdom he would introduce some kind of political settlement, and these people that were following the Lord would have great status in this new kingdom. You see, Judea was filled with all kinds of political views and political ideologies, and there was this idea that the Romans could be driven out eventually. It was a melting pot of all of that kind of thing. And this man misjudged the Lord as being just one of those other political, radical leaders. So he wanted ambition for himself. He wanted power for himself, status for himself. Lord, I'll follow you whithersoever you go. But Jesus said, you've got it all wrong. My path is a path of rejection. It's not the path of popularity. Perhaps he wanted learning. He recognized that the Lord said things that no one else had said. He had tremendous ability to teach. He wanted to learn all about that. He wanted the learning. The Lord said, if you're going to follow me, yes, you might learn. 
but there will be a sacrifice, there will be a price to pay. What does this man represent today? What does he represent in the modern church? Somebody who wants to be part of an organization. Somebody who wants to be part of the church, the external body. Somebody who wants to belong to some kind of religious society. Someone that wants position, perhaps. Someone that wants to further his or her business. Someone who's attracted by political, sectarian, or cultural reasons. I'll go and worship along with people that think with me as long a, a certain line. There can be many reasons why people will say, yes, I'll, I'll follow the church. I'll follow the teachings of the church. I'll become part of the church. Yes, I'll even be Christian. But there's not the genuine faith in Christ in the heart. You see, what the Lord was saying here, where there's going to be faith, there's going to be a test. There's going to be a test. And the test for this man would be, would he be willing to live where the Savior lived, walk where the Savior walked, suffer where the Savior suffered? Would he be willing to do all of that? Sometimes the chorus is sung, if you can't bear a cross, you can't wear a crown. And if we're going to have heavenly reward, then we're going to have to face difficulty in this life. Where there's faith, there's always going to be a test. Faith will always be tested. Grace will always be tested. Because there's one thing that faith will do. It will survive the test. It will survive the trial. It will survive the persecution. It'll survive the hardship. If you're a Christian tonight, and if you're going through a, a tough time where you're at on account of your faith, you're being challenged on account of your faith, you say amen and hallelujah to that because faith will always be challenged. We have to expect such things if there is true faith. And the trial of your faith, Peter said, is more precious than gold. There is a purpose in that trial. And so here was the impossible disciple. He just wanted to follow the Lord, but wasn't willing to take up the hardship, wasn't willing to accept that. But let's also think about the excusing disciple here, the excuser. And this man did hear the voice of the Lord in verse 59, and he said unto another, follow me. But he said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. This man was called. He heard the voice of the Lord. We have every reason to believe this was an urgent call. It was an immediate call. It was a call that demanded a response now. It was a call that could not be left off until another time. There had to be a response now. Reminds me of the call of the gospel. Whenever the Lord calls a man or a woman to be saved, there must be the ready response now. Eternal matters are too important to trifle over. They cannot be left until another time. They cannot be left until another hour. Because now is a day of salvation. There's only one time to get saved, dear friend, tonight. And it's tonight. It's tonight. It's not tomorrow morning. It's not the service next Sunday. It's, it's tonight. We've had this gospel mission, and the Lord has been speaking. God has been calling. And some have decided to leave it. Why? Why would you leave it? Your eternal destiny is at stake. Where you're going to spend eternity. That's the issue. You need to come to the Lord now. 
This man, he had a reason why he couldn't come now. And we look at this and we wonder what was wrong with his reason. He said, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. He had a funeral to go to. It was his father's funeral. Is that what he's talking about? Or is there something else? Is there something deeper? It's difficult to believe that the Lord would ever stop a man from burying his father. After all, you're... In, in, in those days, you, in, in the East, and still is the case, in, in hotter countries, you were, you were buried the day you died. The body couldn't be allowed to remain out of a grave for very long. So, if this man's father had really died, would he really have been walking along that road with the Savior? Because he would have already been making preparations to bury the father. There must be something more here. There must be something deeper. Is it the case, as some commentators have said, he, he wanted to go back home and he wanted to stay with his family and do his duties to the family until his father died, whenever that would be. And then whenever the father died, he would do what the Lord required him to do. That is the more likely reason. And of course, that was a very open-ended question because no one could tell when his father was going to die or how long his father was going to live. And so here was a man who was absolutely and totally wedded and bound to family. And it was the idol of family that was preventing him from coming to Christ. Family is important. There are a few things as important to us as family. But yet, family should not keep us from Christ. Family should not keep us from following after the Lord. Because the best thing we can do for our families is to come to Christ ourselves and to follow Christ ourselves and to pray that they will follow us and that we can be an example to them. But this man didn't see it that way. He wasn't willing to follow the Lord. And God is calling you. And what is your excuse? What is your reason? You might think that your reasons are, are very fine. You might think that your reasons are valid, but they are not. There is no valid reason for refusing Christ as your Savior. There's no reason for refusing Christ. Whatever reasons you have, if you're standing before God in the judgment day, not one of them will stand up to scrutiny. They're just empty excuses. The Lord has something to say to this man, just as he had something to say to the previous individual, something that gives us a little insight into this matter. Jesus said unto him, let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. Look, your family are dead. They're dead in their sins. They have no interest in spiritual things. Let them go and look after your father. There's plenty of people at home to look after your father. Plenty of people at home to do the business of home and family. But I have greater business for you to do, to go and preach the kingdom of God. The great Baptist preacher in London, C.H. Spurgeon, he said that some people would write to him and tell him to take up a position in some political matter going on in the country. Because people are listening to you. If you were to take a position, people will, will listen to what you're saying, and you could have a real influence 
And he would say, there's plenty of people out there to take a position on these political matters. I'm going to preach the gospel. And they said other people would write and say, I want you to get involved in some of the social issues of the day. And there were many social issues in Victorian England. London had, had slums and there was poverty and all kinds of problems. And he said, no, I'm not going to get involved in all of that. There are people who aren't even Christians and they're doing a good job helping the poor. But I have a greater message that can help the poor. And it's the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was basically him saying, let the dead bury their dead. But I'm going to preach the kingdom of Christ. I watched this afternoon the memorial service for Dr. Bill Woods. And Dr. Bill Woods was one of the, the greatest Ulster men of our generation. There is no doubt about it. And whenever God called him to the mission field, he came from a family. There were no Christians in that family. Only Christian in the family. And he had some ambitions of going to university and becoming a school teacher. And of course, that would have been a big thing for the family. And he told his folks at home, he said, God's called me to the mission field. And his father said, you'll never make it to a potato field. Never mind the mission field. And he never forgot that. And he had to face the just the trials of all of that. What family thought of it all. He had a greater work to do, and that was to preach the kingdom of God. It does highlight the importance of the gospel in life. Nothing is more important than the gospel. The gospel alone can change and transform people's lives. The gospel alone. We need a vision for that. The power of the gospel in this world, in this society. We need to pray that this power will be unleashed and we need to be holy and completely dedicated to this gospel. Go thou and preach the kingdom of God. And then in the third place, we have the contradictory disciple. And another also said in verse 61, Lord, I will follow thee. Here's someone else saying, I will follow thee. Perhaps he had been listening to the first fellow and he didn't just be so open about it. He didn't talk about going wherever the Lord would go. He knew the answer for that one. But nevertheless, he said, I will follow thee. But he had another rather interesting reason why he couldn't follow the Lord now. But let me first go and bid them farewell which are at home at my house. Let me go back home and say farewell. So, unlike the second person, he didn't want to go back and stay at home, but he wanted to go back to visit home and say farewell to the people at home. And then he said, I'll follow you. But there was something wrong with this man's heart. And the Lord knew that. The Lord knew that once he got back home, the folks at home had a chance to turn him around in all probability, he would never follow. The Lord could see right into the heart and in the soul. And the Lord wasn't calling him in order that he might go back to bid farewell to those who were at home, first of all. The Lord wasn't doing that. The Lord was calling this man that he might go now. Follow the Lord now. And there was something about this man's spirit. He wasn't actually going to follow the Lord at all. The Lord could identify that very clearly. 
He was a man who was so wedded to home that returning would have broken his spirit. And this was what the Lord was getting at here whenever the Lord treated him, as he did treat him, with the words of verse 62 that we'll come to with the, the final point. But what this man was doing was this. He was negotiating with the Lord. That's what he was doing. He wasn't totally refusing. He was negotiating. He was saying, Lord, I'm going to follow you, but here's, here's my terms. I'll follow you on my terms. I want to go back and bid them farewell, which are at home first. That, that's my terms. He entered into negotiations with God. And that is a very, very dangerous thing to do. You cannot negotiate with God. Whenever we look at some of the other disciples that did follow the Lord, you think of the disciples that were fishing, you think of Peter and Andrew, and you think of James and John, and how they were mending their nets and they were fishing, and what happened when the Lord called them? They forsook their nets, and you, you get this picture of James and John. There they were with, with old Zebedee, their father, and they were working away, mending their nets. This stranger comes, follow me, and suddenly the two sons, the backbone of the business, they turn their back on their father, and they go and follow this stranger. And you can see Zebedee saying, hey boys, where are you away to? We're following Jesus. There was no negotiation, because that's what the Lord required. You think of of Matthew and sitting there at the tax office, working away with his ledger, taking in the money, and the Lord comes along and says, follow me, and he leaves the tax office behind. He abandons that whole life, and he gives himself over to God. There was no negotiation. You see, you can't negotiate with God. It's true of the sinner. Dear friend tonight, you're out of Christ. Don't you negotiate with God. Don't you say to the Lord now, this matter needs sorted out. That matter needs addressed. I, I need to come to terms with that. I need to get Christmas over. I need to get into a new year. And then I'll come to you, and you have your own terms. God doesn't give you the privilege of making terms with him. You come to him now. You give him your life now. You turn your back on sin, and you give your all to Jesus Christ. There's no negotiation. It's also true of the Christian. For God speaks to us. He speaks to us about service. He challenges us about doing something for him. He calls a young person to the mission field. He calls a young man to the ministry. And there's not to be any negotiation. It's all or nothing. It's all for Jesus or it's not at all. You think of Lot's wife. All she did was look back. All she did was look back. It doesn't seem like much of a sin, really, but it revealed what was in her heart, and as soon as she looked back, she became a pillar of salt because her heart was in Sodom. You see, if we are truly the children of God, our hearts can't be in this world and the things of this world. They must be for Christ, Christ alone. So it's not just about words. We can have all the words we want. I will follow thee. I will do this. I will do that. There needs to be the heart, the determination to follow after Christ. And that takes us to the genuine disciple. And we see him here in this final verse of the passage. No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. The Lord requires his people to be single-minded. The plowman 
walking behind the horse or the ox, he had to be single-minded. His eye had to be looking straight ahead, keeping those animals straight, plowing that straight furrow. His mind couldn't be anywhere else. His eyes couldn't be anywhere else but on the task in hand. If we are to be true disciples of Jesus Christ, we need to be looking straight ahead, looking to Jesus, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of the faith, putting all our trust in Him, all our hope in Him, all our ambition in Him, looking unto Jesus, surrendering our whole life to Him, looking unto Jesus. There is faith and there is obedience. We look unto Jesus, putting our faith in Him. We look unto Jesus by obeying Him. Two things go together. It is the work of the disciple. Going forward, going forward. The Lord said to the man who was the second individual in the verse 60, Go thou, preach the kingdom of God. This is what I want you to do. You are to go and you are to preach. This is your job, not to go back to your family, but you're to preach. Go. This man said, I want to go bury my father. The Lord said, no, you're to go and preach the gospel. If we put our hand to the plow, we need to go forward. Faith and obedience. God wants us to go forward, not to turn back, to go forward, to go on. The great doctrine of sanctification is for the people of God. It's about going forward, going on with God, being determined to go on with God, being determined to become closer to the Lord, to die unto sin, to deal with those things that are holding us back, and to go forward for Christ. Yes, it is all about, on the one hand, our commitment to the work of God and to the things of God, and being at the place of prayer. That's all important. It's about being in the private place of prayer as well. It's about giving our time to God's Word. It's about having a heart for the things of God going forward. You think of the analogy of the plowman. No man having put his hand to the plow. It was hard work. It was a work of preparation. It was a work where there were stones in the ground, and ground was difficult at times, but he had to keep going. He didn't see an immediate harvest. He was only preparing the ground for the sowing. And then after the sowing, there would be the harvest. So the harvest is months away. But without the plowing, there never would be a harvest. For there never would be anywhere to put the seed. So it was a hard work. It could be a discouraging work, a back-breaking work. But it was a work that had to be done. When God has called us to plow, he has called us to put our hand to the plow. And there'll never be a work done for God in the future. There'll never be a harvest in the future unless we plow, plow now and serve God now and give Him our all. And if we put our hand to the plow and if we look back, we're not fit for the kingdom of God. The doctrine of eternal security, you know, is not found in the Scriptures. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is found in the Scriptures. 
Some people, they take that doctrine, eternal security, and say, oh, I'm saved, I'm going to be in heaven. This sin's committed, that sin's committed. There's no real fear of God. person becomes so slack, thinking that they can somehow live a careless and different life and get to heaven. Eternal security has blinded that person because they think eternal security is resting, doing nothing for God, being careless, resting in some kind of decision. The perseverance of the saints. Those whom God calls take 